don't know if we're missing a row or something's changed since I've been gone. <laughs> I feel like I need to step closer. Um, it's really good to be back after being gone for about three weeks. If you uh, are visiting or you haven't, uh, or you haven't, uh, or you started coming here in the last month, um, I am. I don't know what what to call. I was going to say the normal preacher, but some people don't think I'm that normal. So I'm, I'm the regular person you will see up here uh, on a on a regular Sunday. So anyway, I've been uh, I've been out of town, and if you've been with us for less than a year, <clears throat> when I tell you where I've been, you're going to think, "Wow, why did you go to New Zealand and Fiji?" Uh, and I want to give you a very short, I'm going to talk about that for about five minutes or so, and then we're going to get into First John. I can't wait to get there. But if, if, you're, if you're new here, uh, the history of the work in New Zealand and Fiji goes back with this congregation uh, to 63. I, how many years is that? 50, uh, 53 years ago. Wow. Something like that. And uh, if you'll see, there's a picture. That's a picture of my parents who are not with us today. They're in New York City with my little brother who's sitting on their lap in that picture. And um, but uh, they they came here last August, uh, moved here, and we're really blessed to have them with us uh, living with my sister, Claudia. But this is a picture of, of us, I think, in around 66 or so. When we were in the process of moving to the Fiji Islands, if you want to know who I am, I'm the far left there. And that's when I was young and had hair. Um, but uh, connection with Fiji and New Zealand go back, goes back all the way there. Uh, my parents helped establish the church in Wellington, New Zealand, uh, and also in Suva, uh, Fiji. Uh, they were the first full-time missionaries for the Church of Christ there in uh, Fiji. Uh, 1992, I had the opportunity. I, came, I moved here in 90, 1987 and was working with the congregation. Had the opportunity to move back to Fiji. Uh, I was invited by the church there in 91. 92, our family moved back uh, to um, New Zealand, uh, New Zealand, Fiji. And we were there until about, I always, we had some transition years. I began preaching here on somewhat of a full-time basis in 2006. Uh, for the first two or three years, we spent up to four months going back to Fiji, following up on the work. And so our connection there has been to help strengthen the, the churches there and help um, build them up. Uh, this next slide here shows where Fiji is, if you don't know, in New Zealand. It's a long ways away. It took me, uh, because of some layovers and some plane problems, when I left Fiji, uh, I left Friday afternoon this time. And I arrived here Monday afternoon. That's three days of traveling. And uh, that's just, it's a long ways. It doesn't look that long, but the Pacific Ocean is a big ocean. Um, New Zealand is a close neighbor to us. It's only about two, three hour, uh, about three hour flight uh, from Fiji to New Zealand. And uh, my connection with uh, New Zealand has to do with uh, this, I think our next slide, yes, Samu and Marama Rakai. The Rakais worked with us in the Fiji Islands for several years, and then they migrated to New Zealand. And last year, they uh, wrote us or emailed us and asked Julie and I if we would come and do a marriage seminar for the Morningside Congregation in Auckland. Auckland is right up there at the top of the, near the top of the North Island of New Zealand. And so uh, we did a workshop there. They asked us to come back. Julia was unable to travel uh, this time. So uh, I went alone, uh, spent 10 days in Auckland working with the uh, Morningside congregation and was really encouraged by the people there. It's a multicultural congregation. It's only between 80 and 100 people, but people from uh, Singapore, China, uh, Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, New Zealand, and a bunch of other places. And it was a great uh, time with them. Uh, we, I did a seminar, spoke about eight times, I believe. Uh, uh, seminar, some other teaching, visiting people. I rented a car and traveled literally, literally outside of the city limits of Auckland to the north and to the west and um, got to uh, be with a lot of people. A lot of folks wanted to just talk to me about the church and uh, how the church can grow there uh, spiritually and numerically. Did some marriage counseling while I was there, a lot of visitation. 
And it was just a really encouraging time to be with the church. One of the things they kept asking me about, asking me, is, hey, when you come back next year, bring Julia. <laughs> so it just shows you where their heart is. All right. Uh, then I went up to Fiji. While I was in New Zealand, there was a big hurricane that went through, one of the biggest, well, I think it was the largest hurricane that's ever been recorded in the South Pacific. And you push that little button, you'll see how it went. It goes up to Coral Island there, boom, right through it. And went across the north and then went out. Um, the uh, Coral Island was really hit very, very hard. That's quite a distance away from Suba, down there at the bottom uh, right corner, the southeast corner of the, of the round island of Bitilevu. Uh, as I went around, I, uh, people were without electricity. The electricity started coming on while I was there. Um, uh, everyone that in the church that I could find that I knew were okay. Uh, some people needed some, some supplies that I was able to give them, uh, but uh, the churches overall were, were doing well. Uh, this past Friday, uh, a group of Christians went from Suva to the northern island where the hurricane hit, and they've been checking out uh, with some Christians there. I have not heard back from them uh, what kind of uh, needs may, may be. Uh, they may have or may not have. But anyway, I spent uh, only about five days in Fiji following up on, on that work there. And I just want to thank the congregation for this congregation for allowing me to go there and, uh, and try to encourage the people there, the Christians in New Zealand and in Fiji also. If you have any questions about our work there in the past and possibly the future, we're just seeing how God opens up those doors and uh, we're just thankful that, that when we do have the opportunity to go back and help the people there. It's a long ways away. And so because of that, and it's very expensive to go there, um, it's not like, uh, some, like El Salvador where we can fly down in a few hours and be on the same time zone approximately. And, um, and I encourage people to go to uh, El Salvador. It's a great mission point. Um, but the, just the length of time traveling, as I said, it took three days to get back. It took two days to get there. It's almost a week just in your traveling going back and forth. And I know that Jim and the Lowry's are in Russia, where it's about that far away, too. <laughs> just going the other direction. Um, but we're thankful that the church here has a mission heart and wants to reach out to people not only here in Huntsville, but throughout the whole world. Turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. While I was away, I did not quit studying the book of 1 John. I continued. And so there are some great things in this short uh, book. I shared with you before I left, um, in chapter 2, verse 28, there's a transition. Uh, John begins what we'll call a new section. And what, I, what I've come to call this is uh, it's an expansion. John expands on what he has previous, previously talked about. And so in chapter 2, verse 28, he begins to expand on what he has talked about in chapter 1 and most of chapter 2. We get into chapter 3, verse 1, 2, and 3. And these, this is marvelous. If you go to sleep the rest of the lesson, just listen to this first part, okay? Chapter 3, verse 1 is God says, this is a fact. This is who you are. You are God's child. And if you want to memorize a verse, memorize chapter 3, verse 1. It's a beautiful passage. And it'll give you great encouragement if you'll read that, if you'll just memorize that one passage, that one verse, and meditate on that. We are God's children. And then in verse 2, he gives a promise. He says, this is what you are going to become. Uh, we are not what we want to be. And one day we'll see Jesus, we will be like him. And that's a promise. And then he brings us back to earth in verse 3 and says, here's, here's the labor, here's the work that you'll do. You're going to be purifying yourself as he is pure. This is how you change. And we spoke about that. Now let me begin this lesson by asking you a pointed question. And I'm not asking for you to raise your hand, okay? Did you sin this past week? Did you sin this past week? And if you're having a hard time remembering any sin, well, I'm not really sure. Let me just ask it a different way. Did you live a perfect life? You know, a lot of times we'll say, well, you know, we're, we're, you know we, we didn't do anything really bad. So we might struggle with, did I sin? And maybe that's, and that's rare. I think there's very few of you. 
But when you get to this part, did you live a perfect life? You say, no, no, I didn't do that. Here's the bleak reality. I have sinned. I sinned this past week. I didn't want to. In fact, I did my best not to sin. But the more I have considered this, the more I've seen how insidious sin is, how sneaky it is. You do your best not to sin, but it's impossible to completely avoid it. I may not have committed what I've called in the past felony sins, but my life is full of misdemeanor sins. And we may feel we're doing well until we discover that breaking God's law, his perfect law, places me in this category, as we'll see in 1 John and in the second in James, a lawbreaker. You know, think about that, a lawbreaker. God did not just give some arbitrary laws. Say, oh, here's some laws. Keep these and I'll like you. Law equals God. Law equals love. This is God's loving direction that says, if you want to live the way I created you to live, if you want to live at your very best, here's, here's the manual how to do it. Here's the law. That's it. It's not just trying to make life miserable for us. It's saying this is how you live. And we mess up. We break the law. We break love. We break God. James says that in chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles, and yet stumbles at just one point, he's guilty of breaking it all. Why is that? If I just break one law, why am I guilty of breaking it all? Because I am less than God. I'm less than perfect. I'm less than the way he, he created me to be. And it doesn't matter if it's murder or hatred. It doesn't matter if it's lust or adultery, grumbling or covetousness. I'm a lawbreaker, whatever I've done. And that word stumble can be very disconcerting. We stumble. It doesn't mean fall. It doesn't mean purposefully sin. It means what it says, trip. If I just trip up, not fall, just stumble in one point, I'm guilty of breaking all the law. If I, you know, when, when you trip... We don't do that on purpose. We accidentally trip, right? You're walking along, you trip, and you catch yourself, you keep going. And that's what he's saying. You're walking through life, and you just trip up. You mess up. And God says, when you've done that, yes, it's in your weakness. It's, it's not, you didn't intend to do it, but you have just become guilty of breaking the whole law. James chapter 3, verse 2, uses that same word. He says, we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. And he goes on to say that if you don't trip up in the way you use what you say and what you do, then you're a perfect person. And we all look at ourselves and say, well, I'm not. I'm not perfect. I, I trip up. I mess up. And so we're going to read this passage, 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. And I want to warn you, John's going to say some really, really tough things here, okay? And I want you to hang on with me for a minute because it can, it can be very disturbing to some of you. It was disturbing to me. Verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning. Because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. I read it fast, but I want you to let's take a look at some of these statements here. And this, this, this causes people distress. Verse 4, anyone, everyone 
who sins breaks the law. Anybody here sin? You're a lawbreaker. I'm guilty. All right, let's read on. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Does that bother you? I sin. Therefore, I don't abide in him. I don't live in him. Perhaps, you know, I fooled myself. Perhaps I just thought I'm a Christian. Perhaps I've never seen him. Perhaps I don't know him. That's a logical thought on these verses. Verse 8, he who does what is sinful is of the devil. You sinned this past week? You're of the devil. Wow. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. I thought I was born of God. I've continued to sin. Therefore, I'm not born of God. Now, before we get too distressed, I'm going to give you two forms of encouragement and then a key to understanding this passage as, as we t- tackle a difficult passage that I've meditated on for three weeks. <laughs> First, we have to read this in the context of the book. You've got to look at the context of the whole book. You see, we hit this and we go, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm lost. And we forget about chapter 1. Let's go back to chapter 1. You take this in isolation, you're going to misunderstand it. Here's the context. Chapter 1, verse 7. Walking in the light, and I'm not going to read the verse, but walking in the light includes you sinning. And Jesus' blood cleansing you of sin. All right? Chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 8 says this. If we claim to be without sin, we are deceiving ourselves. If you say I'm without sin, you're deceiving yourself. You're calling God a liar. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says that when we sin, we have Jesus as an advocate. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the propitiation. He's the one that takes the wrath of God on our behalf. He takes the punishment on our behalf. So he says when you do sin, Jesus is there. He's your advocate. He's the one who speaks to the Father on your behalf. And then, as I mentioned, chapter 3, verse 1, we're his children. This is our present, current relationship with him. So the whole context of, of this book, and this is why context is important, it states that sin is part of our human existence. And, for Christians, is taken care of by the blood of Jesus. So when we read this verse, we just can't pull it out away from that context. We have to remember that. Sin is part of my life. And I must understand that, and I must understand how God takes care of that. Second form of encouragement. We need to remember the three purposes of the book. Read commentaries. You know what the, most commentaries tell you what the purpose of this book is? Combating false teachers who are Gnostics. James doesn't say it. Uh, John. James doesn't say it. John doesn't say it either. <laughs> you know what John says? Surely you know if you've been listening. John, he's giving you three purposes. He's told you, he has stated, here's the three reasons I wrote this book. Chapter 1, verse 4, that your joy may be overflowing. Number 2, chapter 2, verse 1, I write this so that you will not sin. And then chapter 5, verse 13, he looks back. He says, I write this so that you will know you have eternal life. And so when we look at these verses here, there's joy in these verses, okay? Our first glance at it, we we miss the joy, maybe. But there's joy in these verses. There is motivation not to sin in these verses. And you will know you have eternal life as you look at these verses. So those three things will take place. And then I'm going to give you the key that I think is the key. Is to remember how John writes. He takes a thought. And as I said, he expands on that thought. He introduces a thought later in the book. He expands on it. And I believe... And this is where the light kind of went on in my mind as I studied this, is that this is an expansion of chapter 2, verse 1. I write this so that you will not sin. Boom. This is going to help us not sin. That's what this is all about. And so when we grasp this teaching, it will give us great encouragement. It will help us not to sin. If you think about this, if you meditate on it, if you pay attention to it, this will help you not to sin. And so we're going to dissect this. But before we dissect it, we've got to look at a bad word. Sin. 
He says in chapter 3, everyone who sins. you got to look at sin, okay? We're going to take a few minutes to look at sin. What is sin? First of all, it's not just doing bad things. Now, that's, that's what we normally think. Sin is doing bad stuff, right? Sin is doing things we shouldn't be doing. And it is that, but it's not just that. Sin is a condition. It destroys everything it comes in contact with. Sometimes it's very sneaky, insidious. Sometimes it's very overt. It comes hits you right in the face like a, tra- a freight train if you're standing on the track. That's the way sin is. It'll get you one way or get you another way. It destroys everything it touches because it's the opposite of life. And I put that in a capital L. Life, meaning Jesus. Sin's effect is always death, which we'll look at in a minute. Sin is disobedience to God's law, but it's deeper than that. It's more than that. And that's what I want us to look at today. Sin is more than just doing bad things. It's falling short of God's glory. God is perfection. And you know when he created mankind, you know how he created them? Perfect. That's the way it should be. He said he created man and he said that is very good. Mankind, man and woman together. That's the way that life is supposed to be. But man chose to do his own thing. And as a result, he was made less. He became less than God made him. He fell short of God's glory. He was living in God's glory. Some people think that the clothing that Adam and Eve had was God's glory. That was their, that was their clothing before they lost God's glory and discovered, I'm naked. And I think they had some validity there. That they were covered in God's glory, and that's what they saw because that's what they were. And then they sinned, they fell short of God's glory. Romans 3, 23 says that you've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We're less than perfect. We're less than what we're meant to be. God is the standard. And everything, anything less than God-like behavior is sin. Three, sin is choosing to be God instead of letting God be God. This is, I know better attitude. You've all done this this week. You knew better. Better than anyone else. And so you did what you wanted to do. It's basically idolatry. I would ask James about this. Good definition. You remember what he said? Or were you you thinking about something else? Idolatry. Extreme love, admiration, reverence for a person or a thing. That's what I scribble down. I am the idol. I'm the idol. I have extreme love. For myself. I know better than everyone else. I am I admire me. I'm 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 saying this whatever, rhetorically. You you say it <laughs> to yourself. Because we do, we all do it. We center our lives to me, and that's exactly what Adam did. That's what exactly what Adam and Eve did in verses uh, in chapter three of Genesis. He said uh, Satan said, You won't die what? You will be like God. That's why we do what we do. That's why we choose to be God. Instead of letting God be God. That's why it's sin. Sin sin includes not doing good things. We're going to go on for a little while here. Another three more after this. It's not only doing bad things, but it's choosing not to do good things. It's more than not just doing evil or just doing evil. It's, it's not doing good. James in his uh, chapter four, I believe, of James says to know the good you ought to do and not do it is what? Sin. So you're, you're not doing bad things. Good. Are you doing good things? Well, sometimes. Sometimes I know I should do something and I don't do it. That's sin. We often view sin as active disobedience, but it's also inactive disobedience, too. Just not doing what I know I should do. I know I need to do that. I know I need to say this. I know I need to help this person. I know I need to do this good. And I don't do it. Sin. Sin is making a decision apart from faith. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Wow. 
See, it gets us everywhere we're going, isn't it? It's, it's so deceptive. Sin is so deceptive. It gets us coming and going. We think we conquer a sin. We think we, we, we maybe even conquer a big one. There's a big one in our lives and we get rid of it. Great. And then we find ourselves prideful over our accomplishment. We stop doing things we shouldn't do and we rest on our laurels only to neglect the good that we ought to be doing. We get over one thing only to see something else in our lives that we've never seen before. And it's like one of those games that has those pop-up things and you got the club. You ever play that? Oh, what, what is it called? Whack-a-mole. Whack-a-mole. Whack-a-sin. You're just trying to knock them down. One sin after another. And they just seem to be popping up all over the place. Constantly knocking down one for another one to come up in our lives. And the result of all these things, this is my point, because we're seeing ourselves here, is death. Different sins have different consequences in our earthly life, but they have the same spiritual consequence, death. Physical death and spiritual death. Um, Robert did a really good job of this Wednesday night if you were in the auditorium. And he talked about this. He said, you know, we, we die immediately spiritually when we sin. Adam and Eve died immediately and they began to die physically at that point. And even though consequences of sin are different, I would rather be hated than murdered. I'd rather be hated than hit. All right? So if you're tempted to hit me, just hate me. <laughs> That's what I prefer. But Jesus equated them in Matthew chapter 5. He said, if you, if you hate, it's just like murder. The consequence, the ultimate consequence is the same. The wages of sin, the payment for your sin, the paycheck you get for your sin, Romans 6, 23, death. Doesn't matter what kind of sin it is. It doesn't matter the number of sins. You could be a little sinner or a big sinner. You can do felony sins and misdemeanor sins. You get the same payment. Death. Physical, spiritual death. And then we get to John, and we see another thing that he further describes sin. He says it's lawlessness, verse 4. And this means more than just breaking God's law, all right? Breaking the law of Moses. It is that. But if you look at that word, Old and New Testament, study that word all the way through, the fundamental meaning of this is rebellion against God. That's what it is. It includes specific acts of rebellion. It includes refusal to acknowledge God as God. It's the general condition of your life. It's all those things. But sin and lawlessness here are equated. They're synonymous words, actually. It means that whatever sin is in your life, whatever it is, it is in complete opposition to God, God life. So when I look at all these things, I say, you know, sin is not trivial. It's not benign. It's not harmless. It's rebellion. It's malignant. It's devastating. Whatever sin is in our lives. And so the first step of applying chapter 2, verse 1, I write this so that you will not sin. And this is why I parked on here for a little while. Is to recognize the devastation of sin. Sin in my life. How deadly sin is in my life. We can't treat this light. I'm not a good yeller. I'm not a good... I, I, don't, I don't think I'm really good at giving you guilt trips. You know? And sometimes I kind of wish I was. Kind of. You know, to look at this and say, you know, when, when, you, when sin is in our lives, it is deadly, it's devastating, it's not light, it's horrible. And we will not quit sinning if we dismiss our sins or we excuse our sins. The biblical view of sin from chapter 3 of Genesis on is that it is serious, it is deadly, it shatters relationships, it kills, it hurts, it destroys life, it destroys health, it destroys the spirit, it destroys your emotions, everything. No matter what the sin is. The first sin, what could be... Less sinful than eating a piece of fruit. 
We've all eaten fruit this week, probably. You should, if you haven't, you should. It's a simple thing. That's all he did. He took a piece of fruit and ate it. And it destroyed, it destroyed the universe. It destroyed them and destroyed creation. Broke it. And all this sin, misdemeanor sins, felony sins, the greater sin, the lesser sin. Jesus did say there was a greater sin. He was talking to Pilate. He said, those guys have the greater sin. There's a greater, there's a lesser sin. But they're all the same as far as the ultimate result, death. You see, sin in its essence is not a mistake. It's not a fault. It's not a weakness. It's not an aberration. It's all those things. But in essence, it's rebellion against God, which is rebellion against love. God gave us the way to live because that's the most loving thing he could do. This is how you live in love. That's what John's going to talk about later. Living in love. All right? And he says, this is how you do it. And we said, no, I know better. This one time. This one time I can't help myself. Whatever, whatever we say, we step away from God. We step away from love. More than that, it's placing myself as my own God. It's making God less in my life than he is. And even more than that, we all need to realize that my sin, whatever sin it is, my sin murdered Jesus. Robert brought this out, too, I think, I think in a beautiful way on Wednesday. He said Jesus had a choice. Adam, Eve had a choice. They had a tree. They had a choice. Taken from that tree or not taken from that tree. They took from it and they sinned. Jesus had a choice. He was looking at a tree, a cross. He could die on it or he, could, he didn't have to. And the reason he did, though, was because of my sin. What I did. He made that choice because of what I did. Whatever the sin is. Lesser or greater degrees of sin. Two inter- traditional interpretations of this passage as we get to it. The first one is called a doctrine of perfection. And that's, you actually will read that. I'm not going to spend hardly any time on this. There are some that teach, according to this passage here, Christians can live a sinless life. There's two problems with that. When he, you know, when he says that no one who lives in him keeps on sinning, therefore, they say, well, you, Christians can stop sinning. They can live sinless lives. To me, two, two things happen. I live a hypocritical life or either I'm blind to my sins. If I believe that I can live sinless, then either I have to be a hypocrite or I have to blind myself to my sins. That's my only choice. The other problem is it directly contradicts with chapter 1 that we just looked through. It says, if you say you have no sin, you are a what? Liar. All right, so I have to dismiss the doctrine of perfection. More common, and this is my title, the doctrine of the occasional sin. This is what I mean. I'll read this over and over and over. They say the verb here, the verbs in this passage mean habitually or continually. And they do, all right? They actually do. So what he is saying here is a Christian should not habitually sin. That a Christian occasionally sins, but not habitually. And so as we read this passage, we should, we, we, we're talking about occasional sin in your life, but not habitual sins. When a person occasionally steps up, they repent, they confess, they ask God for forgiveness. You've heard that preached. Here's a quote, and I'm not going to tell you who it comes from, but it's a quote that summarizes what many people say. The one who walks in the light, therefore, is not one who never commits an act of sin. Rather, he is one whose general walk is in accordance with God's word. And who, when he does occasionally sin, renounces it, seeking God's pardon on, it should be, God's terms, so as to be cleansed. And that sounds right until I start thinking about it. I start thinking about the misdemeanor sins in my life. I think about how I act without faith at times. 
how I don't do the good I ought to be doing. And I ask myself, is that occasional or is that continual? We already admitted, I think most of you in your minds, that you sinned this past week. Do you occasionally sin all week long? Or do you continually sin all week long? And this is especially distressing if I'm in the throes of a currently struggling with a particular sin. I'm particularly struggling with a particular sin right now in my life. I'm really trying to fight it, but I commit it on a regular basis. And so this person comes to me in counseling and says this, have I committed the the unforgiven sin? Sin against the Holy Spirit. I struggle, I struggle, I struggle. And then I see this passage here. It says, if you sin, you're of the devil. I must be of the devil. Because I'm struggling with this sin. And some of you struggle with foul language. I haven't heard it. So if I just tag you there, that was your conscience, not me. (laughs) Some of you dealt with pornography this week. You know who you are. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. You're struggling with it. Some drugs. Some of you smoked some marijuana this week. The congregation cannot be this big and diverse and no one... And I was pretending, oh, no one smokes marijuana. I didn't, but... No, but you, you know, I know. I know a percentage. Alcohol. That was just one beer. That's all it was. But you felt bad about it. Lust every day. And if you take this passage, you're saying only the Christian that occasionally sins is okay. I don't occasionally sin. I struggle with lust every single day. I'm not an occasional sinner. And it removes these people from a relationship with God. They're just floating. I guess I'm not. I guess I've got to go come back. And If that's true, every Sunday there should be 30 or 40, 50 people up here repenting. And it places the occasional sinner, occasional sinner in a very dangerous position. That of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. I'm not going to go there in the scripture. And so it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Jesus is having dinner with a Pharisee, all right? He's eating dinner, and this woman walks in, and that's the custom of the day. People would come into the courtyard and listen to the teacher. And this woman comes in, and she just starts boohooing right at his feet. And she must have gotten down on her knees, and just the tears are coming down. She's weeping, and tears are falling on his feet, and so she takes her hair and washes his feet. And Simon the Pharisee, the churchgoer, the good man. He sits there and says, uh, in his mind, if he were really a prophet, Jesus were really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is. She's a sinful woman. And the Bible says she lived a sinful life. And so Jesus, beautiful, this is what I love about Jesus. He says, Simon, I want to tell you a story. I love it. I want to tell you a story. One time there was two people, one owed 500 denarii, another one owed 50. Here's the problem. Neither one could pay the debt. And so the, the man who had the debt, had the, had the notes, he said, all right, I'm canceling both debts. Neither one could pay. So who do you think loves him the most? The one who had the 500 denarii debt? That's over a year's salary, a year and a half, something like that. Or the one that had 50. And he said, ah, suppose the one that had the bigger debt. You're right. See this woman here? She has a big debt. She loves. She realizes it. Simon did not realize he had a debt. So I've decided to call this parable the parable of the story of the sinful woman and the occasional sinful man. <laughs> really, that's what it is. We, we focus on the sinful woman. We, we forget about the occasional sinful man. Guess who most of us are? Most of us in this room are the occasional sinful man. Most of us are Simon. And here's the bottom line. This is, this is the point. We're all habitual sinners. We don't occasionally sin. We continually sin. We're all either the sinful woman with the big debt 
or we're the sinful Simon with a smaller debt. And both have a debt that cannot you cannot pay. You can't pay it. If that offends you, hold on. I'm going to offend you some more. I am. I want you to think about your sin. Think about your sin, your debt. 50 denarii debt. 20, whatever it is. You can't pay it. And it may not be pornography. It may just be worry. Anxiety. You may not be struggling with cursing. It just might be selfish ambition. It may not be pride or complaining. It just might be unthankfulness. Considering yourself better than someone else. I can continue. Some of you struggle with gluttony. Some with covetousness. Some with selfishness. For exams this week or next week, have a problem with cheating? Some of you cheated, lied. It might be materialism. That might be your sin. What about inappropriate interaction on social media? Well, I've read some of those. Or, I know this is really odd, but inappropriate interaction with people? I mean, real people, you know, not socially. <laughs> Could be that. Debauchery and entertainment. I use the word because it's a biblical word. Debauchery. You ever read that and say, well, what's that? I don't, I don't know. So if I don't know what it is, I'll just let it go. It just means an ex, an excess in anything, any sensual thing, an excess of it. And, man, we have the source to be have an excess in entertainment, don't we? Our TVs, our phones, our iPads, uh, on and on and on. Lust, pride of the Pharisee, you're doing what's right, you go to church, you're doing all that, those things, so you look down at the person that doesn't. Shall I continue? Laziness. Rude. Racial pride. Oh, don't go there. Go to racial prejudice. Don't go to racial pride. Both can be sin. Lack of submission. Lack of love. Do you like to control others? Sin. You probably do that with anger and impatience. Lack of generosity. Mean-spirited. Impurity. Greed. How about if I step on some toes now? I'm going to, it gets worse. Some of you carry a chip on your shoulders. You've never considered it as a sin, but it is. For some, it has to do with race. Chip on your shoulder about race. For others, it's wealth. For some, it's social status. For some, it's marital status. Just carrying a chip on your shoulder. And woe be it if someone knocks that off. All that's tied up with envy. It's tied up with jealousy. And it comes out terrible. And it's a little sin. Now, if you're angry at me, you come to me and tell me about it and you prove my point. <laughs> you go and talk about it with someone else, you're gossiping. You prove my point. <laughs> Whew. And this thing, we having dinner today. I didn't agree with him on that. If someone else says that to you, just go. Yeah, he proved his point, didn't he? Do we occasionally sin or do we continually sin? And the more I self-examine, I'll pull this on myself now, the more I am convicted of sin in my life. The more I consider my plight... The more I don't like me. You know, outwardly, I'm a great guy. <laughs> no amens? <laughs> I 
Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. But you know, as I've grown older, I see what Paul did. If you read Paul's letters in chronological order, he becomes more convicted of his vast difference between him and Jesus. As he, as he grew in his faith, what he also grew in was to see how great of a distance it was between him and Jesus. I think I've shared with you, when I was a freshman at Harding, there was a time, and I remember the sidewalk I was walking down. I was trying to self-examine and see what was wrong with my life, and I could not think of a, a single thing. Quit laughing. I was young. I was foolish. I was in the midst of, I physically, I was, I was in great shape. I was swimming four to six miles a day on the swim team, so physically I felt good. There were 1,500 Christian women on the campus, and I was trying to date every one of them in a godly way. My teachers, my fellow students were doing their best in their attitudes, in, in their Bible study. It was just a great environment to be with the Lord. And I was walking out, what would I change in my life? What would I change about me? Nothing. And I knew, even when I said that, I thought, I'm, I'm deceiving myself. I know that, but I cannot think of a thing that I would change. Now, I'm not going to tell you all the things I've changed now. But as you grow, you start seeing the difference. And you say, oh, how young and foolish and naive and blissful that stupidity was. But now I'm walking down the road and it's like, wow. I see the difference between Jesus and myself now. You know, we have to be very careful when it comes to sin. And I'm talking about your sin, not other people's sin. We don't want to sin. We try not to sin. But when we do sin, what do we do? We justify it and we minimize it. You see, I'm not complaining. I'm just venting. It's not materialism. It's just some wise tax investments. I'm not being lazy. I deserve to rest after this week. I'm not anxious. I'm just concerned. I'm not being rude. I'm just being honest. Ooh, got somebody. What about this one? I'm not argumentative. I'm just speaking the truth in love. We justify it. And here's our problem. Once again, we've turned ourselves inward to seek the solution. And we seek the solution right here in ourselves. We're man-centered again. We're, per we're me-centered once again in our solution. We're not God-centered. We're looking at ourselves and we're saying, okay, I have this sin, but it's not really not a sin, it's this. We justify it. We're looking at ourselves. That's what we're, we're not being honest and you're saying what it is. It's a sin. It's an awful thing about me. I am an argumentative person. And I hate it about myself. I'm impatient. I try and control everyone around me. And it's, it's sinful. We, we justify it. It's for your own good. You know, you know, like, what's his name? Jesus said. You know, Gentiles, they lord it over it. Book of Luke, he says, and they, they call themselves benefactors. They're doing it for your own good. And we pretend the same thing. Instead of just being honest and saying, my sin is awful. We say, I occasionally fall into lust or I occasionally I'm impatient. So, God occasionally forgives me because that's all I need. The occasional forgiveness of God. Wow. We don't realize how bad it is until we start thinking about it. This is the sin of the long-term Christian. That's me. The long-term Christian. Someone's been a Christian for a long time. You worked and worked and worked. You got rid of a bunch of stuff and then you take the other stuff and you just put it over here and say, that's occasional stuff. I just need occasional forgiveness. You know, John immediately turns to the answer. I'm sorry for taking so long. We're almost finished. Look at verse 5. But you know. You know something. You know this. He's reminding you because you already forgot in verse 3 or 4. You forgot it in verse 4. So he's reminding you in verse 5. You know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. There's the answer. It's Christ-centered. It's God-centered. That's where it is. 
So when you read these things about your sin, yes, admit it. They're terrible. They're awful. They destroy, they've destroyed your, your relationships to certain degrees. Some completely blown them apart, and some they're just messing with them. That's what's happened, and it's your sin. Admit it. And it's just impatience. That's all it is. It's impatience. You never hit her. You're just impatient with her. You killed her. You killed that relationship to a degree. Begun to kill it. And so we try and fix it ourselves, and, and he keeps going back. You know, this is, this is the focus right here in him. He's the one that takes away our sin. We're going to look at that maybe next week. Well, that means that he takes away our sin. You sang it, the first song you sang. Oh, we were coming in, we weren't paying much attention, handling some grandkids in the back, all that stuff. Did you listen to the song? This is the air I breathe. Really? Is it really the air you breathe? Or you take an occasional breath? You can go through life like that. Holding your breath. Or is Jesus the air you breathe? Do you need his forgiveness continually or occasionally? Where's, here, there you are. This is the air I breathe. What is it? What's the rest of that? Um, put it right down. I don't know. I'm not going to say I'm lost without you. That's what I was trying to. <laughs> okay, no, I, I was trying to remember this. I'm oh. we, all make, we all make mistakes. <laughs> I'm lost without you. Am I lost without you some of the time or all the time? That's my point. When we come to these things, we need to all realize. Some of you, if you're the big sinner, if you're, if you're the sinful woman, good. You know it. And you know where you stand right now. You're blessed because of that. But the rest of us who just might be silent, we owe a little debt. But we need to be blessed to realize that only he can pay that debt. He appeared so that he might take away our sins. And that's for all of us. We're going to continue this uh, next week, Lord willing. And I hope you'll be encouraged. Come back for some good stuff on how God takes away our sins. Um,